Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. I want to look at one of the greatest men in the world and see what was important to him and look at one trait of his manhood that we need to work on. We need to work on it as Christian men. We need to work on it in our country, uh, for that matter, in the world. And of course, it's not just something men need. Women can use it as well. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we are going to begin in verse 19. Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. So the topic here is ministry and evangelism. Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all men that I might win more to the Lord. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. And that I might win those who are under the law. He's talking about Old Testament ritual law, not civil law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now, this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? You should run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore, here's how I run, not with uncertainty. Here's how I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified." The Apostle Paul is talking about an important element in world-class womanhood. A vital element. I don't know if I can say the most important or the foundation, but it is a vital element in being a godly man. The Apostle Paul, in talking about ministry, takes a little, a little diversion to give the, the, the motivation that should be in us to do God's work. And he says, do you not know that all who run in a race, all run, but one wins the prize? He is talking about the Christian life. He's talking about the race of the Christian life. And unfortunately, sometimes when we see this imagery, we think of winning something, and we don't understand that he's talking to every individual Christian and saying every individual Christian can win this race. It's a little bit more like golf than track. In golf, you compete against the course as much as you compete against other people. In track, it's all about the other people. Do they beat you or not? He's saying, look, you need to run in such a way that you will be a winner. You need to give the effort that is required of a winner. His target was to win the race, which didn't mean beating all the other Christians, but it meant doing the best before God so that at the end of the race, he would receive a reward from God. 
The Apostle Paul was not satisfied to just be on the team and walk along the sidelines while others competed. He wanted to win, and he said that winning required one very important characteristic, and that is named for us in verse 25. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-control. The New International uses the word strict training. He enters strict training. It's best translated self-control or self-discipline. The word literally means in strength, to have power over, to master, to control something. Everyone who competes has to have self-discipline. Listen to these quotes from the original Olympics back in the time of Paul. The candidate for the races was required to be 10 months in training and to practice in the gymnasium immediately before the game under the direction of judges who had themselves been instructed for 10 months in the details of the game. Training was largely dietary. Epictetus said, you must be orderly, living on spare food, abstain from confections, make a point of exercising at the appointed time in heat and in cold, nor drink cold water nor wine at hazard. Those were the training rules from the original Olympics. Horace said this, another commentator of the day, a writer of the day, the youth who would win the race hath borne and done much. He hath sweat and been cold. He hath abstained from love and wine. There were rules in their day that athletes had to adhere to to be prepared in the mind of their community to run in the races, to, to compete in the Olympic uh, events. To be a world-class athlete, there were things they had to do and things they had to not do, and that required self-control. Oh, where are we at? Do we have, is there a picture in there coming up? No, it's not, okay. Maybe it is, right there. I want to tell you about Allison Felix as an athlete to watch at the Olympics this year. This is a world-class athlete. She got silver medals in the last Olympics, and they're predicting her to get multiple gold. Now, what's unique about her is a couple of things. Number one, she's a Christian. Her dad is a professor at the Master's Seminary. I've never known that close of a sister, close doctrinally, <laughs> who ran in the Olympics, so I'm excited about that. But she's also part of an organization who does voluntary drug testing regularly. They're not just subject to it whenever they might come and check. They're regularly taking blood and urine samples from her to establish the genuine baselines by which they can evaluate other athletes when they try to say, oh no, I haven't been taking performance-enhancing drugs. Her and other people who have been giving these tests all along, they will provide the data needed to keep things honest. They expect her to be one of the next big phenomenons in track. And I find that interesting that it's a Christian who has a conviction to play by the rules. See, Marion Jones was the last big phenom who went down in flames when she admitted she had used performance-enhancing drugs. She cheated. 
To play by the rules requires self-control. Because you're not going to get an advantage from over here. You've got to discipline yourself. If we want to be world-class men and world-class women, we have to have self-control. How are we going to develop this element of self-control? Early in my growing years of Christianity, I read Galatians chapter 5 when it says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And I, I tell you, I had the biggest conundrum over that because, okay, the Holy Spirit is going to give me self-control. Boy, it didn't seem like it was happening. Well, then if I do it myself, I'm not trusting God. And what I've come to understand, and I think you'll see as we study this today, God is going to give it to me. He is going to empower the effort that I put forth and make real change in my life. So how do I develop self-control? Look with me at Romans chapter 6, if you would. Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to spend the rest of our time because this passage really tells us where self-control comes from. Romans 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. For if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to Christ in God, alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Self-control begins with this concept of, of accepting God's standard as the only standard. Look with me at verse 11. Verse 11 uses the word reckon, or in the New International, it uses the word count. Likewise, you have to count yourselves to be dead to sin. God says we're supposed to make a decision about the truth that he has given us. We are supposed to acknowledge the truth. 
And the truth that he's given us is in the first part of this chapter that says we have died to sin. Now if we would implement that decision, the first thing we have to do is this. We have to decide that God's standards are the standards. You cannot make a decision about sin and righteousness when you are waffling on what is sin and righteousness. We have, to make, we have to accept God's standards of wrong. Lying is a sin. Stealing is a sin. Sex outside of marriage is a sin. And that includes looking at pornography and lusting and, and having all of those kinds of thoughts as well as the deed itself. Pride is a sin. Flirting with the coworker is a sin because it's either an attempt to get sex or an attempt to get pride. Gossip is a sin. Gluttony is a sin. I will confess to you that I did not used to call gluttony a sin. I didn't used to get up in the morning and say, God, I sinned last night. Uncontrolled anger is a sin. Dirty language is a sin. Using God's name for something other than worship or testimony is a sin. Words that cut on purpose are a sin. Envy is a sin. Coveting is a sin. Jealousy is a sin. Disobedience to parents is a sin. Disobedience to your school teacher is a sin. Disobedience to your boss is a sin. Breaking the law is a sin. Racial prejudice is a sin. Economic prejudice is a sin. Bitterness is a sin. Now, I'm sure I didn't list every sin that God talks about. But how many of those things on that list have you ever called something other than sin? Folks, there's either sin or righteousness in our behavior. The way I eat is either sinful or righteous. There's no neutral. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's either sin or righteousness. So we have to accept God's standard of wrong and God's standard of right. Righteousness requires love. Righteousness requires forgiveness. Righteousness requires honesty. Righteousness requires truthfulness. Righteousness requires patience. Righteousness requires encouraging communication. And obviously we could, we could list all of the opposites of all of the sins. Righteousness requires humility and it requires obedience to parents and to other God-given authorities. Now, again, I haven't listed every piece of righteousness that God talks about in the Bible, but here's the point, Christian. If you want to get control of your life, you've got to call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. There are things we are supposed to stop and there are things we are supposed to start. But you have to accept God's standard. I knew a police officer in Tukwila, not here. I'm sure none of the police officers here would do this. Who said she didn't write traffic tickets, speeding tickets, unless people were going 14 miles an hour or more over the speed limit because that was her personal standard. And you're going, I knew that. I knew they didn't do it right all the time. <laughs> I don't know, they all do it different. But that's the problem. Everybody has a personal standard. She can't bear the thought of telling somebody else they're wrong for something she does. 
we're really great at having standards other than God's. Do you know what Jesus called those people? Well, he referred to them as Pharisees, and he called them whited sepulchers. But here's the thing I want you to get your, your, your mind around. God does not promise to empower any standard except his. You can have a standard that looks to be extra righteous. Or you can have a standard that is below righteous. God doesn't promise to empower it just because you take it on as a standard. Look at this verse from 1 Thessalonians. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it? Do you know what that means? That means that everything God asks you to do, he will empower in you. But he's not going to empower stuff that's outside of his word. I believe parents have the right to guide the, the activities of their children into doing certain activities that they believe is good for them. But as parents, we need to be careful to understand the difference between that and behavior that is absolutely right or wrong. Because when we teach our children right and wrong, God is part of that process, even if the child is not a Christian yet. And we need to pick up what is right and wrong and teach it as what is right and wrong and expect God to be in that process. But if we have standards that are not absolute with God, we need to be careful how we implement them. The first decision, the first reckoning that we have to make in self-control is that God's standards are the only standards. We need to take a hard look at our life and say, am I living up to what God says or not? And then secondly, again, look with me at Romans 6.11. The specific decision that he asks us to make here is he says, you need to reckon or deem it to be true that you are dead to sin but alive to God. This actually was used as an accounting term in the days of ancient Greece. And it's like when you take a, a transaction, if you're an accountant, you take a transaction and say, where on the paper does it belong? It belongs here. And you, you reckon the transaction to the correct column. God says, look, in verse three, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin." The, the decision that we have to make about self-control is that sin cannot control us. What God literally says is that your sinful nature was nailed on the cross with Christ. And what happens to things nailed on a cross? They die. Your sinful nature was nailed to the cross with Christ when you 
believed in Christ as your Savior. Now, what verse 11 says is he says, decide that that is true. Acknowledge the truth. Now, don't get me wrong. Your decision doesn't make it true or make it false. Romans 6 makes it true. But in your life, getting it active in your life requires you saying, yes, my sin nature is dead. It cannot control me. If you've never come to this realization, Christian, you need to. You need to say, my sin nature does not control me. I make choices to sin. In Christ, I now have a free will. I am free to choose righteousness. I am free to choose sin. And that's what happens. May I remind you about the the sacrifice of Christ? Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now he has suffered once. At the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now here's the question that I want you to really think about a minute. Which sin in your life did Christ not take away? Which sin in your life is bigger than the blood of Christ? Which sin in your life is so big that you need some other supernatural act of God outside the sacrifice of Christ to take it away? Some people struggle to forgive themselves. I got news for you, folks. You will never be able to forgive yourself. But you can look at the sacrifice of Christ and say, you know what? My sin was nailed on the tree. And God's not holding it against me anymore. So why in the world am I holding it against myself? God's taken it away. You have to decide that your sin was your sin nature was crucified, and you cannot be controlled for by it. 1 Peter 4 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us, he suffered for us. You don't need to suffer. Some people hurt themselves because they think they've been so bad they have to punish themselves. I got great news for you. Christ suffered for us. Since he suffered for us, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's talking about this right here. Your flesh has been crucified and you've ceased from sin. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in, uh, time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. I love that. When I read that a few months ago, I went, yeah, I've spent enough time living in sin. Haven't I devoted enough of my life to wasteful things? Yes. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable. 
we've got to come to the place where we say, you know what? My sin cannot control me because God killed my sin nature. Now, are there habits of sin that are hard to break? Absolutely. Is there a flesh that draws us toward things that we should be patient for? Yes. How are we going to get control of those things? The word not, is a, I realize, is a typo, the extra not. So in your notes, just cross off that one right there. You must decide that sin will not control you. Verse 11 is the intellectual reality in Romans 6, and verses 12 and 13 are the practical reality. It has to start in your mind. You have to come to believe that your sin was nailed to the tree, your sinful nature. Your sin is forgiven and it cannot control you. But then there is a practical application of that belief. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin control your mortal body that you should obey its strong desires. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. First of all, we have to call sin, sin. We have to say this is wrong. We have to confess sin. We have to aspire to righteousness. We have to say, God doesn't want me to do it. We have to say no. We have to have this attitude. We have to believe that if God says this is our reality, that it is possible to live in victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. And we sing it with gusto. Do we believe it's possible? Now, I, 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 don't get me wrong, folks. I don't skip through every day with nary a worry or care. No, I'm talking about fighting the battle and then coming out victorious. Because you will never escape temptation, but you will never get a victory until you say, this cannot and this will not control me. Look how Jesus said about this in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to, those of, said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it away from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members, one of your body parts should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it away from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Obviously, Jesus was not saying you should cut your hand off or pluck your eye out physically. But what was he saying? He was saying we should radically amputate sin. The radical amputation of sin is the only way that we will get control of ourselves. John MacArthur in his book on leadership says this, self-discipline is living by principle, not desire. 
One of the simplest things that we have missed in Christianity is the thoughtful evaluation of life in the areas where we struggle so as to say, what is the principle of God that I should be living by and what is the desire that I let run my life? If I can identify the sin and if I can identify or if I can identify the righteousness and I can identify the sin, then I can hold them up. And when the temptation comes, I go, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do, not this. The problem is we have run by our desires so much that we think it controls us, but it doesn't. If you are in Christ, you are choosing to give in. And what verse 13 of Romans 6 says is stop putting yourself and the parts of your body in the place of unrighteousness. You know the old joke about the guy that got his nose broke in three places and his friend said, stop going to those places. (laughs) I knew a fellow that had a drinking problem many years ago and his habit involved stopping at a certain tavern on his way home from work. And when he made the decision to stop drinking, he kept driving by that tavern and it kept pulling him. And his preacher said, stop driving by that tavern. Folks, what are the taverns that you should stop driving by? That's what you've got to figure out if you're going to stop doing sin and start doing righteousness. Put the computer in the living room so everyone knows what you're doing. You see, verse 13 says, don't put yourself into a situation where temptation would be so easy to give into. Put yourself in a situation where righteousness is easy to be be, uh, enforced, if you will. I've talked about this before in my own life. I talked about wearing the logo shirt and it says First Baptist Church and the pressure that puts on me to act righteously. Sometimes we talk about preachers living in a fishbowl. Everybody's looking at them. And you know what? I'm aware of that. When I go through town, I have to control every reaction I have because somebody could just accidentally come to church the next week. Now, do I love that? No. But am I happy for the pressure that says, Dave, this is something you should be doing anyway. And so I make those righteous choices. I struggle with that still, but that presses me. But I've I've mentally put myself in the place of righteousness, not in the place of sin. What are the, if there is a sin issue in your life, then you need to say, how is it that I continue to put myself, I present myself and my bodily parts to sin? I have to stop that and start presenting myself over here. Now, once you learn those two things, now is the battle of your will. Because the battle of your will is, am I going to do right? Am I going to do wrong? And once you know that, you'll have the ability to choose right and wrong. Sometimes people can't figure out those situations. And sometimes you need somebody else to help you see what's going wrong. I talk to people and they go, I just don't know what's going wrong. I just keep walking on this same path and I keep falling in the same hole. And we look at their life and go, here's a place you could avoid that hole. And the lights go on and they go, yeah. And sometimes they say, you know what, I like walking in the hole. 
Take someone with you to the store who will hold you accountable for your spending, magazine looking, or you name it. I heard a pastor one time who talked to a man that wanted to quit smoking, and he says, I'll tell you what, bud, give me your pack of cigarettes. So he took the pack of cigarettes, he put them in a jar, he put a lid on them, and he set them on his desk. He said, next time you want a cigarette, just come ask me. <laughs> what do you have to do? Do you want to radically amputate sin or just sort of just scoot it over a little? See, the reason we can't conquer sin ultimately is because we really don't want to. We're not willing to, to amputate it. We say, I, I need my hand. I don't want to cut it off. I love my sin. Jesus said if we're going to follow him, we have to deny ourselves. Many times in the New Testament, we're told to say no to our flesh and say yes to God. Many years, I, I, I knew a man. He was part of our church. His wife, his family was part of our church. They were active in our church. They were, they were fun people. We enjoyed them. We had a lot of interaction with them. One day, I went to his business. And he had a, he had a home-based business. And I went there and just kind of, you know, we're, I don't know if he was doing something for me or if I was just visiting him kind of looking around his shop and had some of those pictures that are a little bit questionable. And, and then I see this old refrigerator standing open with a two-foot stack of Playboy magazines. Maybe that's why he eventually left his wife for a younger woman. You think? Hey, folks, the radical amputation of sin leads to victory. But if we're gonna if we're gonna say, oh, you know, this is kind of a problem, I have kind of a syndrome, you know, whatever, and we're not gonna be honest with God and His Word, no, we're not gonna have victory. We're we're gonna fool around until we tear up our life. Living by principle means finding the truths of God that I need to apply to my life and then making choices to do those truths over and over and over until they become godly habits of my life. Would, would you turn with me to one last passage, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. I, I saw something here I never really noticed before. I think one of the commentators that I read might have pointed this out. 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse uh, 3, as God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But for this very reason, for the reason that God has put within you the ability to be like Christ, the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, for this reason, here's what you need to do. Giving all diligence, effort, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. Do you know why that's in that order? Because there can't be self-control without knowledge. If you don't know God's truth, you don't know what to change. 
But once you learn God's truth, dare I say it's a mental thing, but it becomes a physical thing as you say, here is the truth of God. Here is how I must live. Now I will choose to act that way. I will choose to live that way. I have been saved. My sin nature has been crucified. But I have to pick up the life of Christ and choose to live it, saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. I got two phone calls this week from the same fellow. He told me his name, but I couldn't understand it. But I knew it was the same fellow because of his voice and his manner of communication. And on the second day, he said this, do you do prayers for people? I have mental problems all my life. Can someone pray for me to be healed? And I said, God's not going to heal you through a miracle prayer. He's going to change you through coming into relationship with Christ as Savior and as you practice the things he's told you to do. If you want to get your life squared away, we will help you. If you have problems with your mind, it is because it is undisciplined. You need to practice the things God has told you and he will change you, but it will take effort. Okay, thank you. I said, if you want to get your life squared away, we'll help you. He doesn't want effort. He wants a miracle prayer that he'll be delivered from his difficulty. I got news for you, Christian. Ain't gonna happen. You know why not? Because in God's mind and in his wisdom, he has decided that the Christian life is going to be about diligent effort to put on righteousness and put off sin and make those tough choices of discipline and grow up in Christ. And he will empower that and he will make that self-control a real uh, element in our character as we give effort to it. God wants to make your life like Christ. And I hope you'll let him. Heavenly Father, help us to see what we need to see. Help us to see ourselves clearly. Help us to see the sin that we do. Help us to see the righteousness we need to do. Help us to stop putting ourselves in the place of sinful temptation. Change our lives. May that song, Victory in Jesus, be sung with gusto, not just because it's a great hymn, but because it's true, because you have changed our lives. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.